here on the second day of unleavened bread. It's uh, unfortunate in some ways. We have some who work days during this time and some who work nights, so there are quite a few actually working tonight. And uh, you just can't schedule it where everyone can be here, but uh, tomorrow those that work at night will not be working because it's Friday, so we'll have them for tomorrow morning at Zion at least. You'll recall that's at 11 o'clock up at Zion Lodge. Uh, I do have, I think, two or three more parking uh, things and uh, permits in my briefcase if anybody's still short one. <clears throat> well, we've been talking the last several sermons about faith, and I kind of wanted to finish that last time so that we could get to Peter during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And one of the prime reasons I wanted to do that is because Peter writes so much about hope, and there's so much about Christ in First Peter especially, that uh, I've always wondered if he didn't even perhaps write it at the time of, of uh, Unleavened Bread and send it out maybe just before or during or whatever. But there's so much about Christ and His sacrifice. Of course, it doesn't necessarily mean that, that He wrote it at that time, because obviously Christ's uh, sacrifice and all that He did for us would have been very much paramount in His mind. Uh, but we think about it ourselves a whole lot more around Passover time, don't we? Uh, because the, the theme is that during this period of time. So from internal evidence, it appears that that could be the case. I don't know that it's earth-shaking knowledge, but uh, it certainly is appropriate for this time when we're here for uh, Passover in the Days of Unleavened Bread. And I think if there's anything we need <clears throat> uh, right now, it's hope because we are living in an increasingly evil world, uh, more and more bombings and shootings and killings and stabbings and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and everything you can name, which in some respects should be hopeful in itself, uh, in that we know that the time Christ returns is getting nearer. But at the same time, there's so much human tragedy and hurt and anguish and pain and misery when they see their relatives, their friends, their wives, their children being killed before their very eyes. And uh, a lot of it is part of a plan that is being foisted off on us by the New World Order and by Satan the devil himself. And even if it isn't a part of the specific plan with false flags and so on, Satan also affects individuals. And sometimes you see such bizarre, weird-type crimes that you, you suspect that it has to be directly involved from Satan or demons or whatever uh, along those lines just because of the very nature of it. Some of it seems to go beyond what even normal, normal human criminals would do if there is such a thing, but uh, into the bizarre and the weird and, the, and so on. So it is a time that is in some respects very scary unless we have hope in God. And that's what this book primarily is about. <clears throat> so let's go into it. Uh, there's a lot about hope. 
There's also a lot in here about humility and some of the problems that people would be facing and which we ourselves are facing, which I uh, mentioned in the introduction as well. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to these people uh, who are church members, but they're strangers in that the world considers them strange. Uh, just as we are told we are ambassadors for Christ, that our, his kingdom is not of this world, that we seek a better kingdom, we seek the heavenly kingdom to come. So in that sense, we are strangers here on this earth. We are looked upon as strange if they find out what we believe. Now, from my perspective, I look at the Mormons and some of their beliefs and think, boy, that's a strange religion. But then so is Shintoism and Buddhism and, and uh, Islam and uh, Catholicism and any, anything you name is a strange religion when you compare it to the Bible. <laughs> but to the rest of the world, we're the strangers. We're the ones out of step. So these scattered people, and indeed the church today is scattered around the world. So uh, when he addresses the scattering, <laughs> he can be addressing the church today just as easily. And of course, uh, this was preserved by God for us. He wrote the letter to them, and they received it in that day. But God saw to it that it was preserved and written and canonized so that we would have this record. So, he proves in the second verse that the strangers are church people when he addresses them as the elect. They have been divinely selected uh, by God. Elected, put an S on it, selected, it's essentially the same thing. Those who are elected are selected by God. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Remember John 6, 44, no man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So, no man's mind can be opened. No one can come to the truth on their own. You just can't do it. There have been people who have tried and they just don't get it. They, they, have, they can get a certain amount of head knowledge, and even a lot of our children who grew up in the church have the head knowledge. They know about Sabbath, Holy Days, maybe Trinity, and things that they heard in church as they grew up. But unless it's mixed with the Spirit of God, it's just knowledge like any other knowledge. It doesn't really mean anything to them deep in their hearts and minds. It's, uh, I mean, some of it, yeah. Some of my kids still don't eat unclean meats and so on, but as far as following God's way, no. That's just something they learned and have an aversion to, and they don't. some of them keep Christmas and Easter either, but, but they're not following God's way the way we are. So, there's something that we don't want to miss right there in that one statement. How, if you're here and you understand God's way and you've committed yourself to serving God, the Father Himself selected you. You didn't come this across this uh, on your own, or even if you did grow up in the church. So many who did that departed or don't care um, or are even against it. 
So some of you, I know, grew up in the church, and you're here because God calls you. And probably 90% of the kids that grew up in the church aren't involved with it anymore because God did not open their minds. He did not lead them to baptism. He did not convert them. So if you're here, it's by the foreknowledge. God planned it. He knew about it before you knew about it. He decided to call you. Now, that shouldn't puff us up and get us big-headed. It should humble us to realize that we're no better than anyone else. Any one of us isn't. There are a lot of people out there in the world who are probably nicer, sweeter, uh, more gentle, loving people in a lot of respects than we are. I mean, just as people, they're nice people. But he called us so we can be thankful and humbled that for some reason God reached down and opened our minds and said, I want you. You're one of the ones I want. Wow. Why? You know, if you think, why why me? It is kind of humbling. Unless you really have an outsized vanity and pride. Well, I don't know why me. Because <laughs> I'm so good. But I don't think most people in God's church have that attitude. If they did, they would have to be crushed out. I think most of us recognize we're from the weak and the base side of things. But God selected us through sanctification of the Spirit. Or sanctification is a fancy spiritual sounding word. It just simply means set aside or put in over here to the side for his purposes, set aside for God. Unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ or Emmanuel. So God moved first to select us ahead of our even knowing it. And then he set us aside for a special use, and that is to obey his ways and to come under the sprinkling of the blood of our Savior so that our sins might be forgiven and we might be clean before him. Remember Isaiah 52, when it's talking there before, we, well, we read 53 uh, the other night at Passover and uh, <clears throat> about Christ, but just before that in chapter 52 of Isaiah, about told three or four verses up, it says, Be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. So he's telling us that if we're to bear his vessels, we have to be not only sanctified or set apart for a special and holy use, but then we have to have the blood of Christ sprinkled as it was sprinkled or poured on the ground for our sins to be forgiven. So he's saying an awful lot here in verse 2 about God's calling and what he has what he set us aside to do and, and, and all these things. And, and he ties in here, he says, unto obedience. Well, isn't that what James made a major theme of faith was works of the law or doing the things in God's instruction, all the things that he tells us to obey. And Peter, another apostle, like James, uh, one of the first things he mentions is obedience to God. 
If, we, if we're not obedient, then the sprinkling doesn't mean anything because uh, His grace will come as He sees us follow His ways. Uh, how could religion throw that out? Well, because Satan runs their religions, that's why. Uh, he doesn't want anybody to obey God because he doesn't. But if you stop to think about it, what kind of universe would you have throughout all eternity if you had Protestant doctrine there where you didn't have to keep God's laws and his statutes and testimonies, where you kind of could do as you pleased? Isn't that sort of what we have in the world today? And look at the mess we've made. So, yes, you have to have a code to follow. You have to have rule by law. And if we obey, the sprinkling of the blood of Christ means something. Then he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied. So, another of the fruits of God's Spirit, James said quite a little about getting rid of the wars and the fightings among us because they are a deterrent to faith. How can you have real faith and trust in God with eternity, your eternity, uh, if we're warring and fighting among ourselves? Well, James made quite a, uh, quite a point of that that we just went through, and, and it has to do with living faith. Do we have the faith of God to do God's way and to make peace? And here, Peter brings it up right away, <coughs> that... He wishes the, uh, the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace, the pardon, come from God uh, with peace, to live in peace. That must be something that has always been hard for people to do, you know, is to live together in peace. It's always been a very, very difficult thing for people to do, because by nature we are selfish, we want our way. We think our way is the best way. Uh, that's only natural. Of course it's best. It's mine. That's the way I think, so it must be the best. Uh, well, that isn't necessarily true. And somebody else might want to do things a little differently than you do, but that doesn't make them wrong. Just because we don't approach something exactly the same way doesn't make us wrong. But we get... Uh, crossways with each other, so he wished peace, and I think that is something that uh, everybody wants, but it isn't easy to come by. Blessed are those who make it. So he says, I hope it's multiplied, not just there, but multiplied. Let peace be upon peace upon peace, so there isn't trouble and <clears throat> confusion and attrition and difficulty between and among you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or Emmanuel. Sometimes I don't feel like using Emmanuel as necessary in here. When we're talking about him when he was still Jesus, if you see what I mean. Uh, to us, uh, perhaps we see him as God with us because we're expecting him to come dwell with us in Zion very shortly. So we look forward to Emmanuel uh, he did say there in Matthew, <coughs> you will call him Jesus or Yeshua or whichever word you want to use, but they, later on, will call him Emmanuel. It's a prophecy for the end time. Uh, Isaiah 6, 7, 8, 9 are all prophecies for this end time and 
the Assyrian coming into the land and Ephraim being destroyed and so on and so forth. So uh, it is this time that he says we will use Emmanuel. But if I flip back and forth some and don't always clarify it, uh, in the context of what is being said in the New Testament, I don't have a problem with that personally. Uh, those guys who first brought the thought of using Emmanuel to us think that it's that Jesus is a name for Satan, actually, and, and I don't buy that. Uh, you know, it can be translated in English. <coughs> so, that's just a sidelight. I don't lift my skirts and run into the desert when I hear somebody use Jesus or Yeshua or whatever they want to use. But in general usage for us, I think Emmanuel is better. But in this context, when he was still Jesus to them, I don't have a problem with it. Anyway, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, if we look at ourselves, we can see that on our own we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We know the wages of sin is death. So unless there is atonement or forgiveness for our sins, none of us can live forever. That penalty has to be removed. So... According to his abundant mercy, God's mercy endures forever, and it's not stingy mercy. It's not parceled out a little here and there. It is abundant. It is one of his greatest um, characteristics, his mercy. And we need to be and come to think like God so that mercy is one of the key tenets of our way of thinking where we're not ready to hang somebody or we're not ready to diss somebody or we're ready to put them down in any way, but so that we, in the forefront of our minds, have abundant mercy. We're just, we're just dying to show mercy, okay? God says it is His glory to cover a matter. He glorifies our, that aspect of his spirit, of his mind. When he gets a chance to cover sin, he glories in that. Wow. It's not grudging mercy. It's not, oh, yeah, I might forgive you this time. Uh, but it's abundant, and it's one of his main characteristics that he glories in. He just, he just loves to show it. Can we become that way so that the emotion and the thinking of our minds is that way? <clears throat> According to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope. So we are begotten of God's Spirit uh, to be born into his kingdom at a later time. We're not born again, as they say. We are only begotten as a child is begotten and then has to grow in the mother's womb until the time it is mature enough to be born. And we are begotten of God's Spirit as a seed planted there, and we have to grow in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and come to have more and more of His Spirit and the fruit of it. And then we become mature enough 
that we can be actually born into his kingdom, using that analogy. But it's not a hope against hope. I want us to grasp that. It's a lively hope. You know, there's, there's different kinds of music. There's dirges that you, that you can barely listen to. And then there's lively music. There's music that makes you want to dance the polka, maybe. You know, polka, who, who knows what that is anymore. But uh, I'm saying the, the lively stuff that makes you want to kick up your heels and, make, and it, it energizes. Well, that's the kind of hope that God wants us to have through the resurrection of Christ. The, of ourselves, we're nothing. We can't give ourselves eternal life. We can't resurrect ourselves. But through Him, we can be resurrected. And, and He wants to give us a resurrection. He wants to either change us when He returns or resurrect us. And it's His good pleasure to give us the kingdom. There again, like abundant mercy, he says it's his good pleasure. He revels in it. He just gets so excited when he thinks about you and me being part of his kingdom. You know, we look at ourselves sometimes and say, how would God want me there? <laughs> I have that emotion quite often. Why would God want me there? And I suspect we all suffer with that at times because of our either low self-esteem or or whatever, or even our pride and our vanity can make us feel that way when we know we're not what we ought to be, and either good or bad, uh, because we know we get lifted up in pride. And then why would God want somebody like me there? But <clears throat> He really, really wants us to be there. Uh, we, we need to keep that in mind. Remember it at all times. That he's not just, well, yeah, well, all right, I'll let that one in, I guess. Um, no, he's, he's, he's pulling for us. He's hoping. He says that he will make up the difference for us. If we try, he'll make up the difference. So it's to be a lively hope, an exciting hope. To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. It's like you have a reservation made. When we are baptized, when we come into God's church, I could go back and, and read those scriptures about how there's a book of life. And he writes our name in the book that has to do with life. These are the ones I want to live in my kingdom. And he will not take your name out of the book of life. You can. But he won't. If by laziness or inattention or Laodiceanism or whatever, we show that we don't really want to be there because of the way we go about life and about Christianity, then we're taking our own name out, aren't we? You know, when, when people are in the church, we don't really disfellowship them. They actually disfellowship themselves. They actually, by attitude, by approach, by whatever, they begin to withdraw their emotions and themselves. You might have to formally say, oh, well, okay, you're out, so you're out. <laughs> but they take themselves out. 
And it's the same with God. He's very positive. When he writes our name in the book of life, he wants us there. And if we keep pulling away, rebellion or whatever, then finally he'll say, well, you've shown you don't really want to be here, so I will formally take your name out. Now, when I say he won't take your name out, I mean it in that sense. Uh, there will be some who were candidates who won't make it. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but I don't think it's going to be many, because God has the capacity to get us there. He says they're right there in Romans eleven twenty six, I think it is, that all Israel shall be saved. So, he has the capacity, one way or another, to bring us around. But I hope we don't have to be those that go through the tribulation and some of those things to bring us around. <laughs> That's what it's going to take with some. I hope we can learn now. And that we can truly have the faith in the resurrection of Christ. And that gives us this lively hope that is closely akin to faith. That we might, that we might be there for our reservation. You can call and make a reservation in a hotel, and your room is reserved there for you. And they'll hold it until pretty late, especially if you call in and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm running a little late. Will you hold my reservation? Yeah, we'll hold it for you. Because they want you there. They want you to pay your money and stay in their hotel. So they'll make a reservation for you. But you're the one, then, that breaks the reservation if you don't manage to uh, to be there. And then they cancel your reservation and give it to somebody else if somebody else shows up. Uh, that's what God says to us. Be, be careful that no one else take your crown. It's already reserved in heaven for you. Uh, your reservation includes a crown. God makes it up, has it prepared... The only way we're not going to get that crown is if we ourselves fall short. So it's reserved for us. Who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. God, by His power, helps us stay. He helps us endure. Blessed are those who endure to the end. And he will give us what help we need if we have living faith. It is through the power of God through faith. God can give power to be strong, to have good courage, to hang in there, if we have the kind of faith that James was talking about. So his power through our faith. He says, isn't that the way healing is? He says, according to your faith, be it unto you. The power to heal comes from God, but that power is not enacted unless we have the faith that is required for it to occur. Didn't Christ often tell people, your faith has made you whole? So the power is always there. The faith has to come from him through us, the right kind of Living faith. Like, it's, it's interesting. James says living faith, and Peter says lively hope. 
It, it has to be alive. It has to be real. It has to be an excitement, uh, an importance, not something that just sort of is there, but something that we are excited about. And that was really what it all came down to with him scattering the church. We weren't excited enough about eternity. We weren't excited enough about God. We just sort of were taking it for granted and going through the motions. And we, when we went to the feast so much, it was to be entertained or go to the beach or go to the country music or wherever we went. Uh, it wasn't excitement about having a chance to go and commune with God, to take walks in the evening and pray, and, you know, and, and spend time with God. We weren't as excited about Him and eternal life as we were about a feast vacation. And I'm not saying that was always the case. There was somewhat of a mixture of it, but certainly it wasn't, we weren't excited enough about God. That's what Laodiceanism is, is, uh-huh, whatever. No, he wants us to be excited about him. That's what he's talking about here. Kept by the power of God through faith to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Uh, well, we're here in the last time, certainly, and... Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 shows that that resurrection, the mystery of God, will be finished at the very last time or the last day of the tribulation. The resurrection occurs at the Feast of Trumpets. Wherein you greatly rejoice. Not just rejoice, but greatly rejoice. As any Mary James said, let him sing hymns. Be excited about these things. Wherein you greatly rejoice. You know, what do people in this world look forward to? They're going to die. They can't take it with them. If they make a lot of money, they're excited about their money, and somebody else gets it, mostly the lawyers. And they're dead. And they rot, and that's the end of it. They kid themselves that they flit around heaven all day, I guess, but that isn't the way it works. We know the dead know nothing. So we rejoice in the salvation that is to come. But then he brings in the other side of it that we still face, doesn't he? Though now for a season, for a time, for some years, if need be, you are in heaviness through many temptations. I guess many of those temptations don't necessarily need be, except that our human nature is so strong. Our human desires, our, our wanting to walk in the flesh can be so strong that it creates heaviness. If we could get past some of that somehow and, and uh, set those things aside, maybe we wouldn't have to be in so much heaviness because of the many different types of temptations that can come upon human beings. It's difficult. As Paul said, the things I want to do, I can't seem to get done, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Uh, he was fighting a real struggle every day of his life. And Peter's addressing that here. So we have this lively hope. We have this resurrection of Christ to offer us life eternal with no tears, no crying, no no pain, 
of what can be ahead for us, and yet it seems like our nature is always pulling us down and dragging us back, always pulling on us. And that creates difficulties. So, we go through heaviness. Uh, I don't like to repent. I don't like to apologize to God all the time. I don't like to ask for forgiveness all the time. But it seems that's the only way I can go. <laughs> I have to. Uh, you know, it would be nice to go before God always. And Good morning, Father. Everything's going great. They appreciate how much you've done. And, and I've had such a great attitude all month. And, and it's just wonderful that you're giving me that. That prayer, I don't think I've ever prayed that prayer. Uh, not all month. <laughs> it seems like every day I have to ask God for forgiveness. Sometimes many times a day. Because of thoughts and, and things that I say or do. So, we, we can greatly rejoice, but we do have this problem. We just do have it. That the trial of your faith, our faith has to be tried to see if we will be obedient and have the works of living faith. Your trust in God has to be tried. Being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of the one who will then be Emmanuel, God with us. The trials and temptations we go through create heaviness in our lives, and yet that is the kind of pressure, the kind of fire that is necessary to refine us. Because when God does not allow us to go through trials or temptations, then we begin to forget God. We begin to take Him for granted. And then we get caught up in trials, troubles, tribulations, temptations, difficulties, and oh man, i got to get close to God before this happens, this happens, or that happens. And God that looks upon those trials that come on us as, as precious to us. It's hard for us to look on them as precious. <laughs> but... If they work the peaceable fruits of righteousness, then they are precious. Isn't that the way James put it? The trying of your faith works patience. Uh, but he, he said something back in here. Oh, uh, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. It, Peter's putting it a little bit differently, a little different word. The subject's a little different, but he's saying the same thing James is. So it is, it is this refining, and Malachi tells us that he'll refine us with fire, that it might be found to praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. We'll be turned into glorious beings and given honor, and we'll be kings and priests with him throughout all eternity. Wow. So, yeah, we may have heaviness, we may have difficulty, we may struggle with ourselves, but look what it can do in the long run if we respond properly. Whom having not seen, you love, in whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, 
you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Now, Peter had seen him. Uh, James had seen him. The apostles had. But these people he's writing to had not seen Christ, even as we have not. He had a stronger base for belief than we do in that sense. Uh, But even those apostles who had spent years with him still didn't understand and believe him until they had God's Spirit. It took his Spirit, like he told Peter, when you were converted, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Uh, He wasn't converted and he didn't understand and he even denied Christ three times. So it took the infusion of God's Spirit in Peter's mind for him to grasp what this is all about. And we, not having seen Christ, can have the same thing happen in our minds. Seeing Christ did not do it for Peter. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Seeing him didn't get it done. Living with him didn't get it done. Those years that he spent with him. None of them got it. Even there at the Passover supper, they still didn't get it. So just seeing him is not the key. Having God open your mind with his spirit is the key to understanding and believing in whom we do not see. Now, the hope in the resurrection is something that I think is very germane to what we're doing here tonight. Just the other night, we had the Passover. And that represents the death of Christ, where his blood was shed for us, and we die in him. So the Passover does not represent life. The Passover represents death. Now, he was resurrected three days later, and the wave sheaf was offered on That's Sunday morning. So it was the resurrected Christ that can give us life. It is hope in his resurrection that we have hope in the resurrection. So Passover is also very, very important in that if he didn't die for our sins, they wouldn't be forgiven. I mean, he was alive before he came to this earth and died for us. So him being alive alone doesn't do us any good unless he first died so that our sins could be forgiven so we don't have to pay the penalty for our own sins. So the Passover is as important a thing as there can be. But let's not forget the resurrection, which occurs, uh, well, according to, the well, this we had a Wednesday Passover this year, just like it was the day that he died and was resurrected. So he probably was resurrected just before sundown this coming Sabbath, weekly Sabbath. And then Sunday will be the day that he was went to his father. Remember he said, don't touch me, I haven't been to the father yet. He was there, but he don't touch me. I haven't been approved. I'm still carrying the sin of the world. And you're not to touch the unclean thing. And at that time, he was still unclean. Not because of his sin, but because of yours and mine. So he said, don't touch me, I've got to go to the Father. And once he had gone to the Father in heaven and come back, then he allowed Thomas and the different ones, if they wanted, to touch him or hug him or whatever, once he had been approved and accepted of the Father. So that wave sheaf then 
will come on Sunday, this coming Sunday, just like it did that year, uh, where he, we, through him, can be accepted for eternity, for eternal life, in his life. It is not a dead Christ that we worship, it is a living Christ. And it is in his life that we might have life. <clears throat> so I'm not minimizing the Passover as him dying for our sins, but let's not minimize his resurrection and his acceptance of the Father as the wave, the sheep wave for us, whereby we can have life. And we have, we have not given that enough attention, I think, over the years, the wave sheep. Because that's the day that you begin to count toward Pentecost, is uh, the day after the Sabbath during the Days of Unleavened Bread. This year it's exactly the same, Wednesday and Sabbath resurrection into Sabbath and then Sunday wave sheet. So we begin that count, seven times seven weeks, and then the following Sunday, the 50th day, is Pentecost. So... The wave sheep offering is very, very important because it begins the count to the Pentecost representing the coming of God's Spirit because that's when Peter got converted. They sat and tarried in Jerusalem for 50 days up here uh, until Pentecost. And then the Holy Spirit came and then they understood. And then things began to happen. So... I'll try to remember to mention that come Sunday, that it's the day of the wave sheaf, but we can be anticipating that here. I was given the word I had to be done by 8.30. Uh, well, that's my goal and my purpose. I, I know some of you have to work tomorrow, and I don't want to keep you, keep you late, so we'll, we'll knock this off here pretty quick. Anyway, through the Spirit, we don't have to see him to believe it. Whom not, having not seen, you love, and whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, you rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We have a hope within us that keeps us going. It is the hope of the resurrection. That's what keeps us going. Because we might give up, we might quit, we might get tired, we might be weary... Uh, and yet, we, we keep going because the strongest desire in a human being is to live. We have other strong desires, but it's always been recognized, at least, that the, the desire to live eclipses all other desires. Uh, people will do almost anything to stay alive, it seems. They don't want to die. And... We have within us an innate understanding that there must be an afterlife and we want to live forever. That seems to reside within all humans, so they have, whatever religion it is around the world, they have something in there about an afterlife, whether it's reincarnation or wafting up and sitting on a pink cloud as a Protestant or whatever it might be, they all believe that there's a life hereafter. Of course, we understand that you're dead and you don't know anything until the resurrection from Scripture. But we still believe in an afterlife. We believe we are resurrected and changed when Christ returns. And that's what keeps us going. A joy unspeakable. Receiving the end of your faith, or the result, or the desired conclusion, you might say, 
the purpose, receiving the purpose of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. That's the whole purpose of this. Is that it isn't just to be in the church, it isn't just to have friends. We're here for a very serious reason, to be part of the kingdom of God forevermore. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come to you. When you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the minor prophets, Daniel, those men did not grasp the way Peter did and the way you and I understand the plan of salvation. They, to some degree, knew. But he's saying right here, they inquired and searched diligently, trying to figure out what this is all about. Paul said, even we look through a glass darkly. It's hard to envisage eternal life. I'm very physical. I'm breaking down. I'm getting older. Uh, you know, your eyes, your ears, your body, your legs, your arms... Your mind, everything begins to go at some point. And we begin to break down and die. And it's hard for us to grasp that we could live eternally and feel good always. It is a mystery. And it's a mystery that won't be fully understood until the resurrection. That's what Paul says there in First Corinthians 15. The mystery will be revealed. It will be understood then. I know it's there, I know there's immortality, I know there's glory, but it's hard for us to fully grasp what that means. It is a mystery. So the prophets searched diligently, and they, when they wrote the prophecies, it says here, were thinking about us. They weren't just writing those prophecies for way back then. There are so many people that try to tell you, well, the prophecies were fulfilled. You know, when Antiochus Epiphanes offered the pig on the altar way back then, that was, that was the end of that prophecy. No, it wasn't. It might have been one fulfillment, but there's, we've had a pig on the altar in Pasadena already offered by the unclean swine. And we're going to have some more of that probably within the church. And... I think it's physically going to be reenacted by the beast and false prophet. Once Jerusalem is built and the temple is there, scriptures are very plain. But he says here that those prophets prophesied of the grace that should come to you. And, and he was speaking to those people 2,000 years ago, but the even clearer, more meaningful message is for you and me today. So all those prophecies that we've spent so much time on are written for us very clearly. They're, they were there for those upon whom the ends of the world would come. I've been castigated a little bit here and there up by others for spending so much time on prophecy. Well, prophecy is all about now. Prophecy is about us. Prophecy is about what's happened to the church and what will happen to the church. I don't spend much time trying to figure out dates, if you've noticed, but I do spend a lot of time talking about the events and the peoples that are involved. And it says right here that that stuff was written for us. That's, that's exciting in itself. But, you know, all those things back there written thousands of years ago were about you and me. God had us in mind when he preserved them. 
I mean, Isaiah and Jeremiah could have talked to those people back then if it had just been for them, and they would have accepted or rejected it. But God caused it all to be carefully written down and preserved so that you and I might understand here at the end what's going on. And not just the events from the standpoint of what will happen, the horrors that are coming, but the whole theme of the prophecies is obedience to God and turning our heart to God. Because all these punishments are coming because of lack of obedience. So really the prophecies are about what? Christian living. That's what they're about. You stiff-necked, stubborn, hard-hearted people, they keep saying over and over in the prophecies, turn to me, turn to God, and you can escape all these things that are about to happen. They're about Christian living. They're not just about prophecy, as some would put it, but they're all about what we need to do so that we might escape all these things and receive the purpose of our salvation. The prophets were very interested. You know, I think they realized the things they were writing down were for the future. I mean, yeah, they had preached it to people. And then God says, no, you write it down. I want that for a future record. Oh, so they wondered about us. You know, we we spend a lot of time wondering about them, don't we? Well, what, what was Abraham like? What was Moses like? What, what were the real circumstances here? We're just getting a little sketchy story in the Bible about it, but uh, wouldn't we like to see all the, the blanks filled in about what was really going on? To me, it's kind of exciting, and it's, it's interesting to study these things in the past to try to put it together about how it all happened, what was really there, because a lot of it's obscure and it's hard to find. So we look back at what they might have been thinking and doing, at the same time they were looking forward to what we would be doing. They were as interested in us as we are in them. Kind of interesting. They wanted to know about the future. Well, we do too, but we also want to know about the past. What is true history? Well, I'm down almost to uh, 8.30, so I think we'll stop right there good place in that sense. But this is very good, positive, exciting stuff to me about what Christ did and, and, and the hope that he has for us and, 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 and his death and resurrection and, uh, and the energy that it can impart to us to be there. So we'll dismiss until 11 o'clock tomorrow morning at Zion Lodge.